how amazing is it, friends, that in our God and his grace and his goodness often goes way beyond our expectations. You're listening to Genesis, a sermon series preached at King's Cross Church. For more audio or theological content, please visit thekingscrosschurch.com. It's a joy to open God's Word with you. It's always a privilege to study God's Word. And so as we come to his word, let's be reminded this morning what this actually is. What do we hold in our hands? It's God's word. It's a lamp to our feet, a light to our path. It's the word of truth. It's the storehouse of wisdom. It exposes our sinful hearts, but reveals to us the way of salvation found only in Jesus, who is the way, the truth, in the life. The Puritan pastor, also writer and chaplain, George Swinnock, he wrote this about God's word. The workman must not go abroad without his tools. The scripture is the carpenter's rule by which he must square his building. The tradesman's scales in which he must weigh his commodities. The traveler's staff which helps him in his journey. There is no acting safely unless we act scripturally. I really appreciate that last line because many in our world like to talk today about what is really a false sense of safety. But the, lever, but the believer knows that true safety is found in believing in and walking in the truths of God's word. And so may his word, and specifically Genesis 48, today be our rule, our scale, and our staff as we continue in our journey through Genesis. Last week in Genesis chapter 37, we saw how the famine that had been foretold of in Pharaoh's dreams, we saw how it actually played out with Joseph's wise counsel sustaining the people and growing the wealth of Egypt at the same time. And we learned the larger truth that God supplies all that we need in a barren world. And so we must look to his supply in order for our lives to be fruitful and abundant. And we closed by rejoicing in the fact that Christ is the one who sustains us with much more than the world could ever promise us. He is our rock and our redeemer, the greatest treasure of our souls. As we come to chapter 48 today, and also in chapter 49, Next week, we have the privilege of a record of some of Jacob's last words, his final testimony, you could say, to the goodness of the Lord, and his final blessings and prophecies to his family. The human race, I think, has always been interested in the last words of a particular person. They range from the humorous to the hopeless. Uh, for example, uh, playwright Oscar Wilde, he was uh, an alcoholic and lived penniless in his final days. He actually lived in a hotel for his final days. And some of his last words were, well, either that wallpaper goes or I do. And uh, he went first. They didn't change the wallpaper, but actually they did. Uh, quite a while after his death, they changed. They got rid of the wallpaper and they, they turned the hotel room uh, to make it look like his London apartment. The last words of Buddha are quite hopeless, 
He said, behold, O monks, this is my advice to you. All component things in the world are changeable. They are not lasting. Work hard to gain your own salvation, end quote. Now you compare that to some of Jacob's last words in this chapter. He says, God has been my shepherd all my life long to this day. He is the angel who has redeemed me from all evil. God will be with you and bring you again to the land of your fathers. What a difference. Jacob, after a life of incredible blessings and severe hardships, utters words of encouragement, trust, and worship to Almighty God, his Redeemer. The only thing Buddha can say is, well, try your best and work your hardest. The only thing Oscar Wilde can do is yell at the wallpaper. But over the next two Sundays, we're going to be looking at Jacob's final words. And today, I've titled the sermon, Our Faithful Shepherd. Because this is how Jacob refers to the Lord in this chapter. In fact, it's the first time that God is called a shepherd in the Bible. And we're going to see some larger truths also about who God is and what he has done that are applicable in our own lives. And so our points for this morning revolve around God as our shepherd. So with this heading, our faithful shepherd, number one, adopts us as his own. Keith, this is where you start to fill in the blanks. Number two, our faithful shepherd makes us co-heirs with his son in verses 8 through 20. And then finally, our faithful shepherd will bring us safely home in verses 21 and 22. So with that as our headings, let's look at our passage. And we're actually, before we look at verse 1 of Genesis 48, we're going to look quickly at the book of Hebrews, chapter 11, verse 21. It says this, by faith, Jacob, when dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph, bowing in worship over the head of his staff. And so this shows us the significance of these verses. And no mention is made in Hebrews of Jacob blessing his actual sons in chapter 49, but the writer makes note of how Jacob blesses his grandsons. And so since the New Testament makes special note of this, we will as well today. And so as we come to verse 1, we see that uh, some amount of time has passed. If you have the New International Version, they translate it as some time later, Joseph was told. And so Joseph finds out that Jacob is ill. And this is not just a cold, oh, dad's sick. No, this is a serious illness. He is on his deathbed. Pastor Pilgrim last week had some good exhortations to us that we are called to honor our parents and take care of them as needed in their later years. And here we continue to see the honor Joseph shows his father. Remember, Joseph is the second most important man in all of Egypt. And yet he drops what he is doing. He grabs his sons and he goes to visit his dying father. It made me think of our own lives. How many of you have had an opportunity to visit someone who will soon pass away. For most of us, it's usually a family member or a close friend. And although it is a sad, difficult time, it's also an opportunity for us to bring comfort and hope or to share the gospel one last time. 
So I would encourage you not to shy away from these moments. I know it's hard, but the Lord may use you in a great way in the last moments of someone's life. And in turn, he may bless you through the person who is dying. They may minister and teach you as well. Another point to draw out here is that you'll notice that Joseph brings along his sons as well. And we'll see in a moment the special blessing that, Joseph, that Jacob gives them. But as we think about our own time and culture, we often want to hide the reality of death from children. We see it even with pets that pass away. You know, we say, oh, well, Fido has gone to the green pastures and the fields where he is running with all the other dogs and just having a ball. And I understand why it's done. We're trying to shield our kids from the pain of death, but I don't think that's the right thing to do. We must teach our kids about death and the hope that's only offered through Christ. We must teach our kids that God created us very differently from animals. So Joseph brings Ephraim and Manasseh along with him to say goodbye to their grandfather and to hear the wisdom that he shares in his final moments. In God's providence, he gives, he gives Jacob these moments with his family to give blessings. And I know that often we, in our families, we may not have moments like this. Sometimes death comes very suddenly. But if there is an opportunity for young children to visit a family member or close friend on their deathbed, especially if that person is a believer, we should make time for it. And so Israel, most likely with some difficulty, he sits himself, he props himself up in bed, and in verse 3, he gives a testimony of God's goodness. He repeats the promises that God had given him, as well as his father Isaac and his grandfather Abraham. And we've talked about this many times in our study of Genesis, so I won't say too much about this, other than to point out a subtle shift in how Jacob describes it. In these beginning verses, he's recounting how the Lord appeared to him at Bethel in chapter 35, verses 9 through 13. And in chapter 35, verse 11, we read this, And God said to him, I am God Almighty, be fruitful and multiply. And it comes across like a command in the English, but in the Hebrew, it's more of a blessing, sounding like, may you be fruitful and multiply. But notice how Jacob describes it here in chapter 48, verse 4. He says, quote, God said to me, behold, I will make you fruitful and multiply you, and I will make of you a company of peoples and will give this land to your offspring after you for an everlasting possession. So do you see the shift? Jacob is telling Joseph and his sons that this is a work of God. He will do it. It's the same theme that we've seen through the whole story of Genesis, that God will bring about all that he has promised. Everything that happened in the family of Jacob was according to the good purposes of God. It's his work. Jacob's reminding his son and grandsons of this. Well, verse 5 tells us of an amazing adoption. Look at verse 5 again. Jacob says, And now your two sons who were born to you in the land of Egypt before I came to you in Egypt are mine. Ephraim and Manasseh shall be mine as Reuben and Simeon are. So this is huge. 
Jacob is saying that Joseph's boys are to be treated as his own. They are included in the inheritance, and they will become two of the most prominent tribes of Israel. And we'll see more on this in a little, uh, in a little bit. But all of this is so uncommon and unlikely, because Jacob will say in a moment, I never thought I would see you again, Joseph. But not only do I get to be with you, I am blessed to know your sons as well. And other than actually being Joseph's, Joseph's sons, there is not much that would explain this adoption because the family had been separated for so many years. These boys, they were born in Egypt. Their mother was not an Israelite. Every person who thought of Joseph's family would rightly think, oh, you know, yeah, Joseph and his family are lost. We don't know what happened to them. Doesn't seem like they're in God's plan to be part of his people. But as we just sang, God unchanging, ever faithful to his covenant of grace, the reuniting of this family and this adoption would never happen apart from the amazing providence of God. And it makes us think, or it should make us think of our own adoption. That through Christ, we have been made part of the family of God. 100% without caveat. 1 John 3.1 says, See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. John Bunyan, he said this about adoption. In my adoption, he told me that my sins were forgiven me, and I was included in the covenant of grace that God was my father through Christ, that I was under the promise of salvation, and that this calling and gift of God to me are permanent and without repentance. Amen. And Jacob is saying here to Ephraim and Manasseh, you are no longer to be identified with the Egyptians. Don't look to Egypt as your home. You are now fully part of my family. You are part of the people of God. And so we do not look at this world as our home, but we are part of the people of God. We long for a heavenly city, and we have an inheritance that is unfading and undefiled, kept in heaven for us. And that would lead into our second point well. But before we go to verse 8, we notice that Jacob has some words to say about his dear wife Rachel and her grave in verse 7. He says, to my sorrow, Rachel died in the land of Canaan on the way. And so the mention of Rachel at this point continues to speak of God's promises. And one commentator draws a parallel here that Rachel gave Jacob two sons as they were about to enter the promised land. And now Joseph gives Jacob two sons as they are entering Egypt. And the mention again of Rachel being buried in Bethlehem, that speaks to God's promise of the land being an eternal possession. In chapter 35, when Jacob buries uh, Rachel, it says that he set up a pillar which is there to this day. And so that phrase, along with Jacob repeating this to Joseph, shows us the faithfulness of God to his covenant promise. And so just as Jacob adopted Ephraim and Manasseh, we see the amazing truth of how God adopts us into his family. But that's not all, friends. Next, we see that our faithful shepherd, 
makes us co-heirs with his son in verses 8 through 20. And so in these verses, we see the details of this blessing ceremony with Jacob continuing to praise God for his mighty works. And several sermons ago, I referred to verse 9 in a previous sermon, making the note that Joseph makes it clear that his sons were given to him by the Lord. And it's the same for all of us here who are parents. You'll notice that Jacob has gone blind. And we remember that the same thing happened to his father, Isaac, in Genesis chapter 27. Now, Jacob had used his father's infirmity to deceive him. But nothing of the sort happens with this blessing ceremony. And even though Jacob's eyes were dim, his mind was clear and sharp. Matthew Henry says here that the eye of faith may be very clear even when the eye of the body is very much clouded. Certainly true of Jacob. The other thing we notice is Jacob's love for his grandsons. It says that he kissed them and embraced them. And that should call to mind Proverbs 17, verse 6. It says, grandchildren are the crown of the aged, and the glory of children is their father's. God designed families so that grandparents could have a special relationship with their grandchildren. And I think there are even times when grandchildren or grandparents may have a closer relationship with the grandchildren rather than their own children. And we've all probably often heard, maybe you've said this, I've heard it said, grandparents say, oh, you know, grand, grandkids are great because you can take them and have fun with them and then you can send them right back and not have to worry about all the difficult stuff. Now that may be true, but hopefully there is an opportunity for something deeper. Grandparents can impart wisdom to young children that the parents cannot. And parents here this morning, let's commit together to teach our children to show respect and honor to their grandparents. We need to maybe lead in that ourselves. The times when we may get annoyed at our parents for a certain thing. I know I do that. But let's set the example. Teach our children have respect for their grandparents and for the elderly in general. Well, verse 11 gives us this great testimony from Jacob. He says, I never expected to see your face and behold, God has let me see your offspring also. God has let me see them. It's his work. And how amazing is it, friends, that in our God and his grace and his goodness often goes way beyond our expectations. Jacob had thought for so long that Joseph was gone, that he would never see him again. But God blesses him with not only seeing Joseph, but by knowing his grandsons as well. And so in response to this, Joseph bows before his father, I think showing reverence to God and to Jacob and also showing the seriousness of this blessing ceremony. And we make note of the fact that Joseph, again, as the second highest official in all of Egypt, who has had many bow before him, has no qualms to bow before his own father. So this shows us his humility and submission to the plan of God that will now be told to him. 
So verses 13 and 14 give us insight into the culture of the time with this blessing ceremony. And so Joseph takes Ephraim and he leads him towards Jacob's left hand. And he takes Manasseh and he leads him toward Jacob's right hand. Manasseh was the oldest so it makes sense that Jacob would lead him towards Jacob's right hand. And in God's word, the right hand represents God's strength, his favor, and his help. But ah, uh -uh, wait a minute, wait a minute. And we should all know this by now, that God does not decide things based on age, based on cultural norms, or based on abilities. And so Jacob does a little switcheroo here, and he crosses his hands. And he puts his right hand on Ephraim. And Joseph's probably thinking like, hey man, what's going on here? And Jacob begins to speak. And before he blesses the boys, he gives a beautiful description of who our God is. And I love these two verses in verses 15 and 16. He begins with recounting the family legacy of worship. He says, my father Isaac walked with the Lord. My grandfather walked with the Lord. They were in a covenant relationship. But who is this God to Jacob? What does Jacob think? He says, he has been my shepherd all my life long to this day. And I mentioned at the beginning that this is the first time in God's word where God is called a shepherd. Now, if you have the King James Version or the New King James Version here this morning, your text says, the God who has fed me. Now, the Hebrew there literally means to shepherd. And so that's why the majority of translations translate it this way. And we know, of course, though, that this is not the last time that God is called a shepherd. Multiple times throughout the Old Testament, we see him being referred to in that way and as one who cares for his people, always cares for his people. And as we come to the New Testament, it's expounded on in a whole new way in Christ. In John 10, Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. And so God is not only, to fa not only faithful to provide for Jacob and care for him all his life, but in Christ, we see that he goes even further to even lay down his life for his people, his sheep. And God is our faithful shepherd. He was faithful to Jacob. He is faithful to us. But that's not all. He calls God the angel who has redeemed me from all evil. Now, it's interesting that Jacob calls God an angel. It's a little unusual. But we know that it was God himself called a theophany, or perhaps even the pre-incarnate Christ, known as a Christophany, that had visited Jacob in years prior. And so it makes sense that he refers to God in this way, as an angel. But the more, the more important point to bring out, though, is that Jacob sees himself as one who is redeemed. Jacob was saved by God. He was purchased by him. God was his deliverer. All these things, all these words can be used to describe what God has done in Jacob's life. And what a fitting way to speak at the end of your life. It's almost as if he's saying a final goodbye to the sin and sorrow of this world. God had protected him all his life, but now he says that he has been redeemed from all evil. 
He's saying, my salvation is complete. I'm about to go be with the Lord and truly be free from it all. Well, with that preamble of worship, he turns now to the boys and gives them two blessings. First, the family name, and second, that their families would grow, multiply, and become large nations on the earth. And this harkens back to the blessing of Abraham in chapter 12, where God says, I will make your name great. So the same promise is extended to Ephraim and Manasseh. But with this blessing also comes an expectation. Boys, you are to walk in the pattern and example of your forefathers. You are to walk with the Lord. But in verse 17, there's a little interruption, isn't there? And Joseph perhaps thinking that his father's blindness has caused him to make a mistake. He interrupts and says, no, dad, you're blessing the wrong boy here. Manasseh is the firstborn, not Ephraim. The text says that Joseph was excuse me, <coughs> displeased. He was wanting to adhere to the cultural practice of blessing, of blessing the firstborn. But Jacob says, ah, son, no, no, no. No, I know what I'm doing here. Don't worry about Manasseh. His people will be great, but Ephraim will be greater. And so this was prophetic. God was speaking through this blessing, guiding Jacob for his purposes. But what does this tell us? So what? Well, again, that age, ability, status, personality, it doesn't matter. God chooses whom he wills for his purposes. And sometimes the firstborn in scripture doesn't mean the one who was literally born first, but it means preeminence, one who has a higher authority and status. David is called the firstborn in Psalm 89. Jesus himself is called the firstborn over all creation. And we see this as a theme in the Old Testament. Just consider these names. Abel, the younger, greater than Cain. Shem, the younger, chosen to continue the line from Noah, greater than Japheth. Isaac, greater than Ishmael. Jacob, greater than Esau. Judah and Joseph, greater than the oldest, Reuben. Moses was three years younger than Aaron. God chose him in a greater way. David, the youngest, greater than all his brothers. And Solomon, Solomon was, I believe, the 10th son of David. And yet God chose him to be greater than all of his brothers. But how did it play out for Ephraim and Manasseh? Well, the book of Numbers gives us a census of each of the tribes as they were preparing to go to war. Manasseh is listed as having 32,200 men of, of fighting age, and Ephraim had 40,500. Also in Deuteronomy, when Moses is blessing the people before his death, he describes Ephraim as having tens of thousands, while Manasseh only has thousands. In Jeremiah 31, Ephraim is described as the Lord's firstborn. And the name is even used to refer to all of the northern kingdom after the kingdom split. So after this little interruption, he resumes his blessing in verse 20. And here it's saying that in the future, the nation of Israel 
will use both of your names as a way to bless people. They would say, may you be like Ephraim and Manasseh. And the book of Ruth shows us something similar. When Ruth is blessed toward the end of the book by the people and the elders, they say to Ruth, they say, may the Lord make Ruth like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. So it's a very similar kind of blessing. Ruth, may you be like Rachel and Leah. And now we're going to use the names Ephraim and Manasseh to bless others. And I wanted to show you this map just briefly here. This is how the tribes were dispersed throughout Israel. Can you get that up there, Daryl? Thanks, man. Uh, as it comes up, you can see that Manasseh there is sort of in the middle, a big, big yellow, a, a lot of land, but it is divided in half uh, by the Jordan River. And so there are two halves of Manasseh. And so many think that Manasseh itself was actually weaker because the tribe was divided in half by the Jordan River. And so you can see the other tribes there as well. Interesting to see the land allotment that they were given. Well, as we close out this point, uh, we see that the blessings and inheritance given to Ephraim and Manasseh, we see them. The boys who were adopted into Jacob's family, they were given a full inheritance. And so that draws our minds to the fact that all believers have been made co-heirs with Christ. Romans 8, 15 through 17 says, For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. So being a co-heir with Christ means that we, as God's adopted children, will share in the inheritance of Jesus. What belongs to Jesus will also belong to us. Christ gives us his glory in John 17, his riches in 2 Corinthians 8, and all things in Hebrews chapter 1. We are as welcome in God's family as Jesus is. We are accepted in the beloved. Galatians 4, 7 also hits on this theme as well. When Paul says, you are no longer a slave, but God's child. And since you are his child, God made you also an heir. Rejoice in this truth, brothers and sisters. There are times when I know when we don't feel like we are accepted in the beloved. But because of the perfect work of Christ, we always are. Ephraim and Manasseh were welcomed into Jacob's family and given an inheritance that was far beyond what they could have imagined. And so it's the same for everyone who is in Christ. Well, Jacob now has some special words for Joseph. And so that brings us to our last point, that our faithful shepherd will bring us safely home. Verse 21, it was a great comfort to Joseph, and I think it should be a great comfort to us as well. Verse 21 says, Then Israel said to Joseph, Behold, I am about to die, but God will be with you and will bring you again to the land of your fathers. So Jacob is telling Joseph here, Son, you're next. 
God will be just as faithful to you as he was to me. He will be with you. He will bring our people to our true home. And jumping ahead just briefly to chapter 50, we see Joseph saying almost the same thing as he was dying. If you look at verse 24, just turn the page. Verse 24 of chapter 50, it says, And Joseph said to his brothers, I am about to die, but God will visit you and bring you up out of this land to the land that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Well, how does this encourage us this morning? Well, it tells us that even though family and friends pass away, even though they die, God will never fail us. He will always be with us. His presence is sufficient. Not only that, but he will bring us safely home. It makes me think of what's probably one of all of our favorite hymns, Come Thou Fount. It says, Hitherto thy love has blessed me, thou hast brought me to this place, and I know thy hand will bring me, what? Safely home by thy good grace. Second Corinthians chapter 5, verse 1 is also a great verse to consider. Paul says, For we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. Not only will God be faithful to bring us home, the reality is, is that God himself is our home. Psalm 90 says that the Lord is our dwelling place in all generations. He will be faithful. Spurgeon also brings out another point here that I liked, he, that God always has faithful men, faithful people, faithful men and women in every generation. He says, if Abraham dies, there is Isaac, and if Isaac dies, there is Jacob, and if Jacob dies, there is Joseph, and if Joseph dies, Ephraim and Manasseh survive. The Lord shall never lack a champion to bear his standard high among the sons of men. Only let us pray, God, to raise up more faithful ministers day and night. We have plenty of a sort, but oh, for more that will weigh out 16 ounces to the pound of gospel in such a way that people will receive it. We have too much of fine language, too much of florid eloquence, and little fool and plain gospel preaching. But God will keep up the apostolic succession. Never fear of that. When Stephen is dying, Paul is not far off. When Elijah is taken up, he leaves his mantle behind him. And so what an encouragement and exhortation it should be to us as fathers, particularly to our sons, our, our daughters as well, but particularly to our sons to continue on in this line that we read here this morning. Jacob says, Joseph, you're next. God will be faithful to you as you walk with him. It's our responsibility as fathers to say, sons, you're next. God will be faithful to you as he has been faithful to me. Walk with the Lord. He will never leave you nor forsake you. We have that privilege and that charge for us to continue on this line of faithfulness. So may this be true of us in our generation. Then finally in verse 22, 
Jacob leaves to Joseph and his descendants a piece of special land. He says, moreover, I have given to you rather than to your brothers one mountain slope that I took from the hand of the Amorites with my sword and with my bow. Now this is a little hard to figure out, but the words mountain slope in Hebrew, it sounds like the word Shechem. And it's the place of Joseph's burial mentioned in Joshua 24 verse 32, which says, as for the bones of Joseph, which the people of Israel brought up from Egypt, they buried them at Shechem in the piece of land that Jacob bought from the sons of Hamor, the father of Shechem, for a hundred pieces of money. It became an inheritance of the descendants of Joseph. And so what seems to have happened is that this land was originally purchased by Jacob back in Genesis 33. But then sometime that we're really not told about, it was stolen by the Amorites, except for this verse here. And so Jacob took the land back by force and is now passing it on to Joseph. We know that Shechem has always been a special place for the Israelites. It's where Abraham stopped on his journey in Genesis 12 at the tree of Moreh and where God gave him the promise of one day owning it and dwelling in this land. And both Abraham and Jacob worshiped the Lord there. They set up altars to the Lord. Later on, Shechem became the Levite city of refuge. And eventually, it became the capital of the northern kingdom of Israel for a time. Today, it is known as Tel Balata. It's an archaeological site. There's a picture of it I have for you. Uh, they've built up... Uh, all around it, there's apartments, but there's this, this piece of land there. They've done some digging there. And so you can, go, you can go visit it, go visit Shechem, go see that. But as we come to a close today, friends, I want to draw our thoughts to God as our good shepherd. We've seen that he adopts us as his own. He makes us co-heirs with his son and that he will be faithful to bring us safely home. David Guzik, in his commentary, he points out a progression of Jacob's recognition of God's presence in his life. Take note of these verses. First, in Genesis 28, 15, God says to Jacob, I am with you. And so in that, we see that God gives young believers every possible assurance of his presence and grace. Later on, in Genesis 31, he says to Jacob, I will be with you. And so here we see God expects the growing believer to trust he will be with him, even when he only has the promise of his presence. Then just two verses later, we see Jacob saying, yes, God has been with me. And so God gives a glorious testimony to the mature believer. And we're able to say how God has been with us, even when maybe we haven't felt his presence in the way we would have wished. And then finally, in our passage today, we see Jacob saying, yes, God will be with you. And so God gives the mature believer the opportunity to encourage others with the promise of God's presence. So in some of Jacob's final words, he gives us a beautiful testimony showing the care of our faithful shepherd, that he loves us, he adopts us, he cares for us, he sanctifies us, he keeps us, and he will bring us safely home. 
Let's rest in this truth today, friends. It makes me think of a song. It's called More Than Ever. It was written by the Gaithers several years ago. The lyrics in the chorus say this. Oh, but now more than ever, I cherish the cross. More than ever, I'd sit at his feet. All the miles of my journey have proved my Lord true. And he is so precious to me. I know Jacob would echo those words. And may we as well. As we grow older and as the Lord takes us through different things, may the Lord be ever more precious to us as we grow in grace. We grow in understanding his love and his purposes for us. But for those of you here who do not truly know the Lord, we want you to know the salvation that is offered to you through the work of Christ. And you know, we're more than halfway done through 2023. And we know that 2024 is not promised to us. And in fact, tomorrow is not promised to us, is it? And so we would exhort you and encourage you this morning to repent of your sins and trust in Christ alone. If you have not done that, God Almighty is not your faithful shepherd. He is only your righteous judge. But if you repent and you trust in him for your salvation, then you can know how our trying God is our faithful shepherd. Well, we just have two chapters left in the book of Genesis. Again, when we come to the end of, of a book, closer to the end, we think, wow, how amazing has this study been? Look at how the time is gone. Well, next week we'll study chapter 49. And in chapter 49, we're gonna see Jacob's prophetic blessings and some curses as well to the rest of his sons. And so we would encourage you to read ahead for next week. Let's pray together. Lord, we love you. We thank you for your word that has been before us today. We thank you for the life of Jacob and how we've seen at the end of his life, he comes in worship and in trust and hope, praising you for how you've been so faithful, how you've been his shepherd in his life. What a testimony he gives us. Lord, and we know that by the work of Christ that you too are a faithful shepherd and that we can have the same testimony at the end of our lives. We're so thankful that you will bring us safely home, that you have made us co-heirs with your son, that you've adopted us into your family. Lord, we ask that you would grow us in our understanding of these things. Grow us in our, our trust of you through every circumstance. Even though the years come and go, seasons change, countries go to war, people are born, people die, you never change. You are always faithful to your covenant of grace. Thank you that you have adopted us into that family. That we can say, no, I'm not really a Floridian. I'm a child of God. It's in this gospel that we rest in, we rejoice in,
We ask that you would give us opportunities, Lord, to be faithful, to proclaim your goodness and who you are to those around us, in our families, with our friends, in our jobs, in our neighborhoods, with those that you give us a moment of time with. It's in the name of Christ we pray, amen. Thanks for listening to our podcast, King's Cross Church meets at 9 a.m. and 1045 a.m. at the campus on Lena Road. If you have any questions or any prayer needs, don't hesitate to email us at info at thekingscrosschurch.com. God bless.